I want to encourage you this morning to turn to Psalm 16. So, so far in Advent, we have actually lit the candles of hope and peace, and this morning we've lit the candle of joy. And then we will light the candle, the love, candle of love next week, and then it will culminate on Christmas Eve with the Christ candle. Now, with all of this, it's just a picture of what it is that Christ in his coming actually has accomplished. And when we say his coming, his incarnation is meaning the fact that Christ took on flesh, that God became flesh for us, that we understand this to be just as essential for our salvation as his death. You cannot parse out all that Christ did. We needed his full humanity as well as his intact full deity to save us. We had to have both. We needed more than just an emotionally sympathetic Savior. We actually needed a human representative to perfectly accomplish the requirements of God on men. And he did that on our behalf. He was tempted in every way yet without sin. In Christmas of 2014, it was the Christmas after my resignation from a church in Arkansas. And I remember it being one that lacked a bit of excitement. I had resigned in August and uh, no scandal or anything like that, just a change of times and change of vision between me and some elders and some other factors that contributed. But the fact was, it was the first time at that point, let me see, in 20, I think at that point it was 25 years of uninterrupted full-time ministry. That was the first time ever had an interruption in either full-time employment or in ministry. And it was a challenge as I entered into the Christmas season. Now, it was a challenge beginning, but even just over those four to five months from August on, it was just a time that is, as any of you who have ever gone through a transition into what many would call a second career or a, a late um, in-career transition, whether forced because of downsizing or other ways, you do go through this time where you are stripped of your identity as it's associated with a position or something you've done. And you, and you know that, you know, some people get this really early in their life, but many of us who just tend to be the types that are the marathon types, we keep our heads down, we do the work until it's really taken from us or the job is stripped away. We just don't give a whole lot of thought to our identity related to who we are in Christ as opposed to either what we're doing for him or for our families. And that whole season for me was that understanding, that being stripped away. And I say understanding, it was more the pre-understanding. Basically, it was just a, it was a Christmas that was fine. I enjoyed being with my family, but it, it was still, there was a cloud. I remember that cloud. We all felt a bit of that cloud in 2020, right? Christmas was different that year. Many of us could not see family members because we needed to continue to to see them protected and guarded because of COVID and the pandemic was, uh, you know, we had hoped that it would see a different year. And of course, this whole last year, 2021 has seemed like a blur. It seems like 2020 continues to linger in the air. 2020 Christmas was unique for many of us. And, and that's what we hope to be a return for some of us this year is, is that whereas we weren't able to see maybe the elderly uh, portions of our family that maybe we'll be able to see them this year. But again, now we have new variants of COVID that are reeling their head and we see numbers on the rise. We start to see that circumstantially, even at a time that should be filled with even circumstantial joy, we understand to be interrupted because we live in a fallen world. See, even back in 2014, by God's providence, my last sermon was on Matthew 9, and it had to do with pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the field. I have never been my own illustration before, and he was sending me into a different field, and it was a very obscure one that I was not accustomed to. COVID, diseases, there's always been diseases. At any given time in our world throughout history, there is always minor to major pandemics, viruses. We live in a fallen world. Every molecule throughout history has been impacted by the effects of sin. It is into this world when you add on top of that political upheaval. It has been difficult to find circumstantial joy. 
even by the world who would not really look to the reason for the season kind of quips. They would simply look to things like you would find in companies like Cadbury, JCPenney, Kohl's, Big Lots, Walmart. They all use the word joy in their advertisements in the last two years. They've tried to say, buy something from us or give something to someone else, experience this joy, give joy, receive joy, eat a really overrated chocolate egg that's got stuff in it that nobody really knows where it comes from and you'll have joy. (laughs) The fact is, is that certainly the world understands joy to be one thing, but as Christians, we have to press in to understand joy to be another. The secular definition of joy, according to Webster, is simply this, a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's more for all of us, where do we derive that? Where do we find that? Certainly in advertisement, in the advertising and marketing world, that is certainly capitalized on. It is certainly hammered down on. Is basically have this episodic joy because basically anything that you purchase, whether it's, you know, one of my favorite commercials is the... Uh, Burmese mountain dog that the guy whistles for and it's a GMC commercial and and it comes barreling through the snow it's a really cute dog love that dog I still take the truck that comes right over the hill probably more than that but um, you know I love that commercial it's great but you know what that dog so sad it's just not gonna be around I'm not gonna tell you that I know the name of the dog and when he died because I hope he's still alive I know nothing about the dog The truck is going to depreciate. I would still take a 10-year-old depreciated truck in case anybody wonders. But still, it's going to depreciate. The joy is going to wane. There's going to be problems. It's going to break down. Even with things that are designed to last 10, 12, 13, 20 years, they're still going to go away. And our world is filled with promotions of having momentary joy that really are so consumable, they literally are gone in the moment. Biblical definition of joy, literally, is a calm delight or to thrive in rejoicing. Now, it could be momentary. It could still reflect on the secular definition of a feeling of pleasure or happiness. But what we're going to see in our passage today and what we see throughout the scripture is that there is a tendency in the world for joy to be purely reactionary. Taste this, buy this, give this, and you feel something. In Scripture, it leans heavily into volition, a choice, an informed choice. But I will posit this morning out of Psalm 16 that it is an informed choice based on security. That real joy for the Christian is rooted in what we know to be sure what we know to be certain. And that's where it presses well past secular definitions of joy because it persists well beyond when things have dilapidated, well beyond when things have gone away or the consumable has been consumed. And we have to find yet another weird, overhyped, not very well-tasting egg. Just get Hershey's, you're fine. Almond or not, doesn't matter. Sorry if you've ever worked for Cadbury. I've actually, I have no idea. I just don't like stuff spilling out of my chocolate. That's just me. Maybe it's a texture thing. As we look at joy from Psalm 16, and we start to see that security and joy together, there's just no way around it. There's no way to do anything but a spoiler here, is that our future joy, our future joy is tied to the security that we understand has been accomplished in Christ. That understanding of future joy, which we know to be locked, we know it to be certain, radically impacts our ability to have joy right now. But what I hope to do as we look at verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 11 in a very simple outline of joy now and joy then is to, is to hopefully not just explicate what the psalm is itself, but also to give a bit of a of life strategy for some things that will help us in navigating, but they are biblically realized. They're realized in the verses themselves. These are not things that I've made up. Now, before we dive into that psalm, I actually want you to turn over to Acts chapter 2. 
Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we will begin in verse 24. So, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. In verse 24, he begins, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, referring to Christ. But then he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. So when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, this foundational sermon for the launching of God's mission upon the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, he is quoting essentially verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16. And yes, he does reference it to be about the resurrection of the Christ. So shouldn't this wait till Easter? No, it shouldn't. Because as we talk about the coming of Christ. When we talk about joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. When we sing anything of joy, whether it's throughout the year with joyful, joyful, we adore thee, we're praising and singing that to a risen Christ. When we remember that joy to the world, the Lord has come. That this God has taken on flesh and he was born, but we're not speaking in such a way that it's merely historical. We're still speaking of a resurrected Christ. In fact, there is no way for us to speak of the first advent without pressing into the pending second advent, his return. We don't know the situation in Psalm 16. We do know the situation in Acts chapter 2. Jesus Christ was prophesied by King David. And it was promised to David that there would be one who would sit on his throne forever, who would be a descendant. Peter makes very clear, this king, who many thought would be the deliverer, this king who's in his line, someone would come and establish their throne. This king, in and of himself, was not sufficient to lead. He was not sufficient. He could not carry the weight for the joys of all the people to rest upon. In fact, because there was so much blood on his hands, he couldn't even move forward just to build a building for God's presence, much less be the actual Savior who would embody that tabernacle when Christ came. No, it was always pointing to Christ. Always. Acts 16 gives us great insight into what does joy look like at Christmas, knowing that he came to live, to die, and to be raised again. Now, back to Psalm 16. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy now. What does it look like to have joy right now according to this text? Well, first of all, we're going to look at, again, one through eight on this section. I would say, first of all, that having joy now, it has to be realized through prayer. Let's not ignore just what is right out of the gate, which is him actually speaking directly to God. Preserve me, O God. Now look, Psalm 16 is absolutely a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm because by definition, a messianic psalm is a psalm that references or is referenced, especially in the New Testament, as referencing Christ. So as soon as Peter opens his mouth and it is recorded that David in Psalm 16 and 8 through 11 is actually speaking prophetically about Christ, this becomes a messianic psalm. That doesn't mean that every single verse or every single word even references Christ. It just means that some portion of that psalm references the person of Christ. Now, we could forcefully make each verse pertain to Christ himself, but I do think it would be forced. I think it's more about our interaction and finding what really he says, in your presence is joy. That we find our resting place not in the circumstantial blessings of a person, but in the person himself. The whole of the psalm deals with that. And in that picture, you see that all of our joy then, if it rests in a person, according to 8 through 11 and how it's quoted with Peter, it rests in a resurrected Christ. That's that person. But we have to understand that to have joy now, look, there's no way, we have to just cut to the chase. It has to be realized through prayer. Regular praying right now reminds us of our moment. It reminds us of our changing circumstances. But listen to the words that David's using. He's using words like, preserve me. In you, I take refuge. Prayer is always an utterance of dependence. We're always being reminded that everything in this world is uncertain, is insecure. But we're praying to the one who has secured a future for us. So without diving into what the next verses are going to say, I just simply want to say this right up front. Let's not ignore the role of prayer in both preserving, promoting, perhaps even resurrecting joy in our lives right now. We can pray because even though we may not know whether or not our circumstances will change, we also know we're praying to one who never changes, right? The same yesterday, today, forever. We're even articulating to him that our present circumstances are pressing down on us. We don't know the circumstances in Psalm 16, as I stated earlier. We don't know, but we know that they are such that David says, I need help. Preserve me. Be my refuge. Be where I hide. We need to articulate this dependence because it reminds us that we don't have a codependent relationship on God, with God. We are utterly dependent upon Him. He is utterly, radically, wholly, totally independent, happy within the Trinity, needs nothing of us to expand or extend His eternal happiness. We are not Greeks given to mythology thinking we can zap the power of the gods with our lack of prayer and hold them ransom because our our affection is being withheld. No, we believe that God is God and we are not. We must pray if we want to even have the hope of having joy right now. I think in verse 2 it really leans into this that we have to be resigned to the ruling of our Lord. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. So again, he's still in a state of prayer, but part of that praying is, yes, you're acknowledging these difficult circumstances, but the very next thing is you're saying, but you rule, you reign. I need preservation, I need refuge, but you are Lord. But you hear the language here? This is why I said earlier, the biblical definition leans more into volition, a choice. 
than it does reactionary like it does in the world. Okay? So kids, if you get a knockoff or the generic brand of whatever it is that you uh, wanted on Christmas, and then you have to choose not to react that it's not the official thing. And it's not just children. It could be shoes. It could be jeans. It could be any number of things. See, later on in life, believe me, you'll want the generic because it's cheaper at the pharmacy. But right now, you'll just, you know, I know that you want the, the, the name brand, but you'll have to make a choice instead of just react because you love your mom and dad so much. We have to be resigned to his rule. We only acknowledge as much. We don't make him Lord. I have never been comfortable with that language. We simply acknowledge who he is and we resign ourselves to it. He is Lord. I don't make him anything. I don't even, in a sense, make him my savior. He calls and resurrects me. And in my gasping breath, yes, I'm given life. He protects. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He preserves us. He provides for us. He sustains us. In prayer, as we articulate this to him and we resign ourselves to his lordship, we are saying, you alone can provide what I need. Now see where he's going when we hit up to, uh, let's see, verse 5. And he, or, or I'm sorry, we're, we're on verse 5. But when we get to, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, back in verse Three, four, as he works through this process, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. I'm sorry, I skipped up there a minute ago. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And he says, as for the saints in the land, as you look at this whole section, he starts to articulate something very particular, and that's really about idolatry. So as he introduces this idea through our praying, and we say we're resigned to his rule that he is Lord, and he is good, and apart from him, there is no other good, okay, in verse two. But then you go to verse three, and you're saying that it, he is then to rejoice among the saints. These are others who agree that God is the best for them. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So you see this inseparable connection between the goodness of the, re, the reigning Lord and the service to and fellowship with those who also have submitted themselves to the reigning Lord. You cannot separate it. You have not been designed to in prayer, in desperation, showing your need, crying out to him for refuge, to fight for joy. You are not designed to fight for that alone. Now, as you look at how two and three relate to each other, as we're resigned to his rule and we're resigned to his rule together. I was reminded of a quote by Spurgeon that's, that's often misquoted, but it's, uh, it's taken from a sermon, I think it was called the, uh, the Happy Christian. And he says this, he is too wise to err. And, and, and to be specific, he says the Christian understands God to be this. So he would say he, the Christian, decides, uh, understands that God is too wise to err. He understands that God is too good to be unkind. He understands that he trusts him where he cannot trace him. He defers to acknowledging that God's character, God's character, when I in my finiteness cannot see the goodness of what's going on around me, I trust the character of God in his goodness, his kindness. I think that's very much is what David is doing here. He's saying, you are Lord, you are my only good and the saints that he finds so much joy in being around and with are also those who have mutually understood that God is their best good. And what happens in that collection of saints? We remind one another to trust the heart and goodness of God when we cannot trace what God is doing. This could be individual circumstances because of cancer, because of sickness, or it could be global. We don't know all that the Lord is doing with pandemics and allowing molecules to seemingly run wild into viruses and expand and morph and evolve 
and just keep finding a workaround. But we know and trust that he has a plan in it. And we know and trust that it is a good. We don't see the good in present death, but that's not all there is, is there? Because joy has to do with looking forward to not seeing corruption, not being consigned to Hades. Isn't it a greater good to know that you are secure with him eternally in the heavenly realm than it is to have present ease only to be separated and consigned to hell? Of course. And God never loses perspective of what is the best good for his own, ever. And the collection of the saints, we together can do this. On any given day, any one of us loses that perspective. But to find joy in the excellency of being around other saints, we have an opportunity to do that with one another. Guys, this is all the more reason why when churches divide over lesser earthly things, whether it is politics, mask mandates, whatever else, if there is division over those things, I think that it is, I don't, I don't even think we can possibly quantify or qualify how offensive that is to God. Because of all that he's done among the saints to make them saints by grace, and mutually bring them together to remind each other of the very thing that's not those things. Doesn't mean we ignore them. It just means in light of those things, that's still not what draws us together and therefore it cannot divide us. So to have joy now, we have to realize it through prayer. We have to resign ourselves to his rule. We need to rejoice among the saints in verse three. But verse four goes on. And I think it has to do with resolving ourselves to holiness the day in and day out. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Another God. So he's talking about idolatry here. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's saying, I will have nothing to do with this unholy character. Now for me, this idea of holiness, this resign to holiness has, is really twofold. It's about rejecting idols but it's about choosing Christ. Or in another sense, as you would hear often with, uh, Paul does this, Peter does this, put something off, put something on. Not wax on, wax off for those of you who go there, but put something off, put off the sin that so easily entangles us. Set this aside, push it away, reject it, run from it. But then he also says, put this on, put on the holy version of that thing that you've been tempted to go after. Why does this fall here? Well, first of all, I think contextually it makes sense because the children of Israel have a pattern and their pattern is basically encapsulates the human pattern, which is this. Whenever we don't trust God, whenever we lose our faith in what God is doing and in who God is, we try to become God and we try to find something that can do what only God can do for us. In fact, Tim Keller puts it that way when it comes to idolatry. Tim Keller says that an idol is anything you seek to give you what only God can. But of course, all those things fall and fail, right? The pleasures don't last. In fact, they usually have consequences that are horrifying. But we grow impatient. The children of Israel had done this time and time again. And they certainly do it throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even onto the, into the new. Constantly waiting on a kingdom, constantly waiting on God to show up through Messiah. Impatient, they get captured by another country. Instead of resisting, they just adapt. And they adapt their gods, they adapt their practices. That's just what happens. That's what we do. We lose faith. In, in hope of what God has promised us, we don't see it, circumstances are overwhelming us, and we go after another God. To preserve joy right now, or to fight for joy right now, we have to pray, we have to resign ourselves to his lordship, we have to understand that we need to rejoice with the saints, okay, on a regular basis to find true joy in being with the saints, in doing what we do, which is exalt the Lord and then promote his name in our community, we also have to understand and resolve ourselves mutually together to holiness. And that is pushing off the things that we have a tendency to run after. And guys, those things don't have to be inherently sinful in and of themselves. 
Because it, it can be politics. It can be other things. You can find things within Christendom that are idolatrous because you're putting something on the object or something on the practice or something on the style or something on the approach that you believe is essential to worship God. As soon as you do that, you've entered into idolatry. We are to resist that. We are to push that off. We're to have nothing to do with that. Everything must have its proper place. And the only way I see that we do that is what led up to it. Praying, resigning ourselves to the Lord's rule together, making sure that we are resounding and reminding one another of the Lord's rule on a regular basis. We must push off these idols, but then we also must choose Christ's reign. So verse five then says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. What is that saying? That language of chosen portion and my cup is that language of provision and satisfaction. It's saying idols don't satisfy, only you do. I have to choose to do what I must do to understand that God alone is enough. Nothing else is. So I push away the idols and I run back to my only king, my only Lord, the only one who truly satisfies. And if you stop long enough, do you not look back even circumstantially? I'm not saying this is perfect because we live in a messed up world. But even circumstantially, can't you look back and see that God has done some things circumstantially to just remind you? Not that, not that you were good enough and that therefore he did something great. But haven't you seen some actual circumstances where God did come through and it's just a reminder. You know, it may not stay that way always, like he healed or person still dies eventually, but maybe there was healing temporarily, or maybe there was job, or maybe there was a check that literally came in the mail to help with a particular debt or a particular bill. Haven't you seen God do some things along the way, even circumstantially, which is a, I see it as a condescending great grace, I don't, not like condescending to someone, but just a kindness of God. He doesn't have to do it, but he does it just to remind us of the greater, more eternal provision that he makes. Hasn't he done enough of that in our lives for us to still trust him circumstantially? But we still must have this nagging truth, a sound theology that says, you know, but even if the fig tree doesn't blossom, as Habakkuk would say, I'll still praise him. Even if the circumstances don't change, because I know he's my portion. He's the only one that can fill that cup. That joy now is very strong in this. But the holiness continues. It's not just that he's satisfaction and provision. When we are pursuing holiness, we also have to understand that there is a hope of a future inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David, David is pressing well beyond the fact that he's to be king. He's banking on the promises of God because nothing looks like it's going to work out like it's been promised at this point. He's banking on the future promises of God. That's part of pressing into this holiness. This actually reckons, uh, connects a bit to our study in 1 Peter. When we get back to that, we've talked about that holy living is part of what sustains our hope. It's also what helps sustain our joy. Why? Because we are living by the standard of the kingdom we're still waiting to receive and be a part of. It staves off hopelessness in this world because we are held by a different standard because we have been redeemed. We now, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, have the ability to choose good and do rightly. And it does the same thing for our joy. If you want to fight for joy as you pray for dependence and refuge, as you resign yourselves to the Lordship of, of God, as you rejoice among the saints, you realize that holiness is not just stopping sin, it is actually finding your satisfaction in Christ. And that satisfaction has to include looking forward to what's coming because you don't see it yet. We still are subject to faith. Faith hasn't given way to sight just yet, has it? It will one day, but it hasn't yet. But he says in the process, he's going to give us guidance. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. As he continues on in this reckoning for holiness, he is saying, it is you and you alone I look to. Even when things are dark, even when things are not anything but despairing around me, I will trust that you will guide. 
He's literally saying that the future promises of God, this future inheritance, is a light unto his path. We know that to be the very description of the scriptures, right? We know this in Psalm 101 that, and, and Psalm 119, the same references speak of the word of God is a light to our path. That Christ himself is the light of the world. That the church becomes a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He provides guidance. But all this is because of what verse 8, which this begins to transition into the joy then, but not yet. It's still in the joy now part, I believe. But I think this is also why it's connected with what Peter says at Mars Hill. Because it has to do with the security, the authority of our promise keeper. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. As he speaks of this, he is speaking of the position of authority that Christ has. David is not setting himself in the position of being God and king. He is reckoning, prophetically so, as to the right-handedness, so to speak, the fact that Christ is in a position of lordship at the right hand of the Father. Where we have a seat with him in this inheritance, we are heirs, we are children, we have that seat with him. It doesn't mean that we are little Christs in that sense, but we are his. And positionally, we are set. Now, functionally, practically, we're still being made into that, right, in this world. But positionally, we have one who is from David's perspective, going to keep promises and be at the right hand of the Father, having done everything and sit down there, having accomplished everything God required. But on this side of it, we know that that's already happened. Christ came as a child, a full-out human baby, lived that life, died that death, was raised out of that grave, and sits at the right hand of the Father, which leads us to joy then, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Joy then has to do with understanding what is it that is my prevailing gladness. You have to make decisions. What is going to give you more gladness than anything else? Now, if you truly are a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I have no more Holy Spirit than you do. I have no more position as a pastor with God than you do as a layman who is a true born-again believer. You have the Holy Spirit. If that Holy Spirit is in you, that Holy Spirit gives testimony to the Word of God when it is read and spoken and preached and you respond to it. You are subject and bound and responsible to respond to it because you are able to because the Holy Spirit has enlivened you, so to speak. So with that, you know, it's not really a decision uh, on what makes me the gladdest um, that, that you're just kind of left out there in no man's land just trying to pick and choose what's going to give you more gladness. It's already built into you now as a new believer. Your creator is now your recreator and he is what gives you greater gladness than anything. So you have to make sure you're resolving yourself to look to that gladness above everything else. That's going to prevail. That's why I use that word prevailing gladness. It has to win the day now because we know then it's going to win the day. We see this language here. He says, therefore, my heart is glad. The Hebrews, would have, the Jews would have understood this in, in not dissimilar ways than even the Greeks. The heart was the seat of understanding, of passion, yes. Emotion, yes, certainly. But it's informed. It's informed. It is an understanding that this is where all of me goes. All of who I am. I am all in. My heart is him. But he doesn't leave it there. I love this. He goes, my whole being rejoices. What's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of who you are. It is holistic. Everything. You know what? This tells me that when we receive that inheritance one day, 
every bit of who we are, every molecule that's been recreated and we've been given new bodies, all of who we are will be restored and redeemed. See, we are so blind to what that's going to be like. You only start to very, to only tap into it when you get old enough to have chronic pain. Because it's just enough to affect you in other ways. It affects everything you do. It affects how you think or how well you think the next day because it disrupted sleep. It has this domino effect, right? But that's just the scratching of the surface of how all of who we are is affected by any part of who we are. When we are redeemed and he comes for his own and he takes those who have been redeemed and he gives us new bodies and and new life and new breath and new everything, we have no concept of how completely and totally filled with rejoicing that day will be. But we look forward to it because it's promised. It's promised. Guys, when, when we are healed, and we should pray for people to be healed, but if we are healed of something physical in this world, all it is is a snapshot. It's a Polaroid of what's to come. Because you know, it, that's, I'm not trying to be depressing or, or, or a killjoy on something going on or a buzzkill, as my kids would say, when it comes to something happy happening in your life. But the fact is that healing's not going to last, right? There is a part of me that thinks Lazarus said, seriously, I got to do this again. But I know that's not what happened, right? He rejoiced at seeing Christ who called him out of the grave. We have to have a prevailing gladness that is all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. See, godly joy impacts all of who we are because we know all of who we are will be glorified. So even though we're not technically still talking about joy now, I'm talking to you right now, right? So even though we had kind of our nice little four clear things in joy now and how we fight for that, it's informed by joy then because that's the security part that I mentioned at the beginning. You don't have joy without security. Otherwise, it's wishful thinking. It's hope in the worst kind of English definition way, not hope in something that's secure. Our only security is what we know he has promised, what we know he has accomplished in us through Christ now, and what we know he will accomplish through Christ then when he comes for his own. The resurrected Christ when he comes. Look over to Acts 13. This is the only other place that Psalm 16 is mentioned. And it's actually mentioned with a little more, at least I'll say missional focus as to its purpose. In Acts 13 verse 36. Acts 13, 36 and I'll read through 37. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Okay. He goes on to speak about the ones who hear this need to understand that this is how the forgiveness of sins happens. The one that David was talking about that did not see corruption is the Christ. But he paints a little more specific picture on what David experienced, which was basically David did his part. Once David had accomplished what God had for him, grave, corruption, decay. But it was part of the plan that would lead to the promise keeper coming who would not see decay, who would not see corruption. It was about, in a sense, I don't want to say exploiting, but it was about exposing who Christ would be and who eventually became and was and is. David's purpose is our purpose. While we are here, we are pointing to the incorruptible one. Your body will be corrupted in the grave should you not be here alive at the Lord's coming. Christ, however, will not. Because of his life, because he is alive, we are kept forever in him. Because of this, we know that resurrection is coming. It removes all fear. It restores our joy. The only thing we even should have lingering fears about is just simply how that's going to happen. I have some serious ways I don't want to die. 
But increasingly as believers, we should not fear death. Fear. We can grieve for a bit, but our grief has that floor, right? And that floor is hope. The hope in the resurrection. So that path to joy, as we go back to Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Because of the risen Christ, we have joy. And he says in verse 11, kind of in summary, so you make known to me the path of life. And again, remember how Paul quoted it. Once David accomplished his purpose, he died. His body was buried. You make known to me the path of life. God will guide our steps because it is all part of a bigger story. And that story is him. Because your life, your life legacy is not to have provided joy. And frankly, as much as we fight for it with our families, we cannot provide for them the kind of security that leads to joy. You might want to provide some kind of financial security, but guys, there's just no guarantees. I'm still encouraging you to do that. You need to either invest or plan, whatever you can do to provide that. Great, that there is a biblical mandate for us to do the best we can with that and be good stewards. But we still have to understand your greater legacy is going to be pointing your children and your loved ones to the incorruptible one. Otherwise, you know what you're doing? You're just stringing together 70, 80, 90 years of temporal joy. Our security is not in any other inheritance besides the one that he affords through the risen Christ. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what's at the right hand of God? Jesus. The right hand of the Father is a position of authority, but there's a person there, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Christ. He himself is our joy. Our joy is personified in the person. So again, I would say, you know, whatever it was that David was going through, let's not dismiss it. But from everything we can tell, God didn't change it. He didn't assuage his difficulty. Joy is not ignoring trouble. It's not distracting yourself from how difficult things are. That's how idols creep in. Things are hard. I'm just going to take a break. But if that break is not diving into who God is, I'm not saying you can't have temporal joy, watch a football game, do whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about if you really try to find relief from pain in that way, that's where it becomes an idol. God doesn't seem to do that circumstantially with David in this text. He does clearly reveal to him that his real joy is in someone those circumstances can't touch. The same needs to be said of us. Joy is finding our deepest contentment and satisfaction in the Christ who has secured our inheritance. And through that, he produces an endurance and a hope in light of our circumstances. So, if you lack joy, or perhaps you're doing a fairly seemingly decent job of fighting for it, but you still need to sustain it because you know it's pretty precarious in this world for us to feel like, oh, I'm in a good place. Well, I would encourage you, as we said in the text, pray. Pray. In that praying, Remind yourself of the lordship of Christ. You're not in control of your circumstances. Only he is. Pray. Submit to him. Don't give up fellowshipping with the saints. You need to find joy in being with the saints to be reminded that there's something bigger and better and greater. Because on any given day, each one of us forgets. Kill your idols. Expose those God replacements and kill them. Set them aside, have nothing to do with them, destroy them. I'm not, we're not going to be having, you know, you can't really have CD burning parties. We'd be destroying computers at this point. But, you know, I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying whatever your idols are, don't treat them lightly. Get rid of them. But also don't, don't ignore the fact that 
getting rid of idols is replacing it with your laser beam focus on Christ and who he is, that he is that portion. Go back to the word. The word doesn't disappoint. Pursue contentment in him. And remember this too, that your hope is a whole life experience. It's a whole body. It's going to be your heart, your body, soul, mind. As surely as one thing you might find joy in, I understand, it's mitigated. Somewhere there's pain. So we all had disruptions in 2020. I had my personal disruptions in 2014. This year, we love being with you guys. We are glad to be with you guys, but it's been, you know, we also are having those first Christmases like many of you without a father, without our favorite dog, without so many things that have died in the last few months. And many of you have experienced those losses too. Seems seems like joy is always mitigated by some kind of sorrow, but look, it doesn't ignore those things. In fact, I would say in light of those things, let them be, as it were, like a different color of a paintbrush on the canvas of what it means to find joy this season, which is in a future that is already secured because Christ came as a child, lived, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, sits at that right hand, and it's in that seat where we find joy. God, I pray that you would help us to know and understand what it means to have joy, what it means to fight for joy, what it means to be resolved to go after joy and not just be reactionary. God, help us to, you know, some, I pray, maybe, maybe there's been some idols exposed. Maybe something's come to mind that they have, that it's just dawned on them this morning, that they have used something to be to them what only you should be or can be. I pray, Lord, that there would be some killing of idols today. But I pray that whether we have to kill idols or not, I pray that we would all mutually together as a church, Lord, let there be a characteristic of joy among us because we actually find great joy with each other. Not because that's easy, but because we all are reminders of the very grace of God through Jesus Christ and that we all share that we have a promise that's to come. And that we're just going to traverse through this life with your word being the light to our path. And in that, we will speak it back and forth to each other, reminding each other, especially in those seasons of forgetfulness, that you have something better. And even though we'll pray for change, if it doesn't change, it cannot still touch the deepest part of our joy, which is Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.